actual video of Iran taking that British tanker? Those guys repelling down the helicopter with their black masks on and everything like that? Yeah, yeah. it's a military operation. Pretty dramatic. The seizure, what are they playing at? What are they hoping to get out of this? That's a high-stakes game that Iran is playing. I'm happy to see that they're leading with it on uh, at least the Today Show, for instance. Yeah, yeah. And and where do we, the United States, go from here? And how does that relate to how some of our Gulf allies would like to proceed? What are their goals in all this? It's, it's high-stakes stuff, and there are a lot of murky motivations. And so we're going to talk to Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group, in just a minute or two. They are hustling him up on the phone. Well, I don't think it's being made clear enough to people that this, the Iran arresting 17 CIA spies um, from the story I just read. That started like over a year ago, this arresting and figuring it out. Why, why this information was released today, I don't, I don't have any idea. Well, tensions are high and getting higher, and here he is, Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group. The Eurasia Group is a leading global political risk research and consulting firm. Ian, how are you, sir? I'm very well, and I can answer that question for you. Okay. Why, why the information came uh, out today? Uh, well, because over a year ago is when the U.S. pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal, but the Iranians were hoping that they could wait out Trump for a uh, second term and see if someone else would win, in which case the deal would come back in. Um, but at that point, the Americans hadn't put new sanctions on. Now they have. As a consequence, Iran is producing almost no oil for export. Um, their metals sector has been pretty much destroyed by the U.S. And other part, about 80 percent of their economy is now under U.S. sanctions. Um, so that's why they're escalating. That's why they're hitting the tankers. Um, that's why they, uh, you know, knocked down the drone. Um, and that's why they decided to announce these 17 Iranian citizens, uh, many of whom are being given the death penalty for being CIA spies. Who, who is that a message for, though, announcing that, hey, we caught your spies and we're going to off them? Uh, it's a message for, number one, um, the Europeans and others that are um, supporting Iran in uh, not wanting Trump to pull out of the deal, but not actually doing business with Iran because of the toughness of U.S. sanctions and the U.S. economy is a hell of a lot more powerful. So they're trying to say, guys, we're going to keep escalating unless you actually give our economy a break because we're under such massive pressure. The Europeans are providing all sorts of support rhetorically, but doing almost nothing in reality for Iran. It's also a message for the Iranian people that if you want to get to talk between Trump and the Iranian government, the Iranians have to show some sort of tit for tat. They have to build their nationalist bona fides. They can't just be seen as caving under American pressure and then showing up to talks having gotten nothing. So in part, this is also, um, you know, sort of proving themselves domestically. So clearly that's their strategy. And for instance, uh, snapping up uh, British oil tankers. Well, in the case of the British oil tanker, it's to show that if you want to have transit that is safe through the Persian Gulf, then the Iranians need to have transit through the Persian Gulf, and they're not able to export the oil right now. So we consider it escalation. How dare you take this tanker? They consider it a normal thing. I mean, anyone advising the Iranian president would say, yeah, this makes sense from their perspective. Also, keep in mind that the United Kingdom has actually seized an Iranian tanker that they claimed was going to deliver illicit uh, goods Syria oil, um, and uh, they still have that tanker, uh, Iranian tanker. It's right now in the port of Gibraltar, which is UK control. Would it be fair to say this is the most financial pressure put on Iran in decades? 
Sure. I mean, you know, there's no question that uh, they were under a fair amount of pressure, of course, before the Iranian deal was signed. But this is much worse than that status quo ante. Um, Their economy is in severe recession right now. Um, Inflation is massive. Um, and the Iranian people are feeling it. And they were the ones that were promised by the Iranian president, if you support this deal, which was as controversial in Iran as it was in the United States, that their economy is going to improve. They supported the deal. They lived up to the terms of the deal, as limited as they were. Um, and now their economy is doing even worse. So, I mean, if you're in Iranian government right now, there's a horrible place to be. Ian Bremmer, president and founder of Eurasia Group on the line. Ian, uh, now that everybody's reestablished their, their hard guy bona fides, do you see this uh, moving toward the bargaining table anytime soon? I think the Iranian government wants to do that. I've spoken with the Iranian foreign minister. It's very clear to me that that is his orientation. The statements we've seen from the Iranian president say that as well. But Iran is not run by its president. It is a theocracy. And ultimately, the decision on whether or not there will be negotiations will have to be made by the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. And he is, it's not his deal. He was not the one that originally put all of his political um, you know, capital into this deal. Uh, that was the president. And so far, he has shown no inclination um, to talk with the Americans whatsoever. In fact, he's been taking shots at President Trump directly um, through social media. So it's not like North Korea, where if you know, Trump can say horrible things about Kim Jong-un, change his mind, and then Kim personally makes the decision. In the case of Iran, it's actually much more complicated than that. And just real briefly, I heard you mention on another show, a lesser show, uh, <laughs> the official name of the Revolutionary Guard, which I thought was an interesting point. Would you mind repeating that? It's the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps. It's not the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps. So when you hear about IRTC patrol boats threatening the UK, or when you hear about knocking down an American drone, um, that's not something the Iranian president has ordered. And in fact, it's possibly not something the Iranian president even knows about. Certainly, he'd have to be briefed. Usually, are those sorts of things he finds out. He's going to find out um, on CNN, uh, just like, wow. frankly, a lot, of, uh, a lot of Trump administration officials found out about Trump's moves on cable television. So it's important to be aware of that. Wow. wow. That's so yeah, interesting. That, that is something right there. So what about Ar- Iran's putting pressure on the world end of it with their talk about, uh, you know, trying to get a nuclear weapon, that sort of stuff? It, uh, it, how's that affecting us and how do we keep Israel from reacting? Uh, two things to mention here. Uh, first of all, despite all of the um, storm on Drang from the Iranians, um, oil prices are still pretty low. So Iran just doesn't have the leverage they used to. Threatening the tankers isn't yet pushing oil through 100. It would have 10 years ago. And the reason for that is because the Americans are now the largest oil producer in the world. Um, and so Iran just doesn't have the influence. Also, the Saudis are cooperating with the Americans very closely on oil production. That matters, too. Now, Iran has said historically they want nuclear weapons. Trump says he's upset about the Iranian deal because it allowed them to get nukes in a relatively short period of time, 10 to 15 years. They'd be out of uh, the, uh, the terms of the deal. And, you know, at that point, uh, they could start again. Um, but, you know, we should keep in mind that Pakistan has nukes. We're not very happy about that. We can't do anything about it. North Korea has nukes. We're really unhappy about that. We can't do anything about it. Israel has nukes, probably 100 even though they've never, deter- they've never announced that publicly. So, I mean, you know, the fact is, if Iran were to have a couple of nuclear weapons, I mean, it sounds horrible from the American perspective, 
But it's not clear it's a game changer in the region the way that, for example, Iran supporting terrorist organizations or Iran supporting proxy groups that are fighting against American allies is actually more impactful on a day-to-day basis. And that should remind all of us just how limited the Iranian nuclear deal actually was. It did not create friendship between the U.S. and Iran. It didn't take all the sanctions off, nor did it stop the Iranians from engaging in all that other behavior. And as much as Secretary of State Pompeo says we want them to fundamentally change, Trump has only talked about the nukes. He just doesn't like the fact that the Iranian nuclear deal was done by Obama as opposed to having Trump's name on it. That's interesting. It makes it easier to get to a place of agreement between the two countries, but makes it much harder to actually improve the baseline relationships. Ian Bremer, president, founder of Eurasia Group. Uh, fabulous. Ian, uh, enlightening as always. Thanks a million. Great talking, guys. All right. Yeah. Let's do it again. Yeah, I don't know. It just I, it seems like there was a contradiction in his own little speech there. So uh, they get a nuclear weapon. What if it's in the in, in control of that Islamic group, not the Iranian group, the Islamic <laughs> group? Well, and who's actually in charge day-to-day in Iran is unclear. So, right, yeah. And and I didn't want to talk all day with him. I know how busy he is. But then you got your Gulf states who are frenemies of the United States in a lot of ways. Some are, some are you can rely on. Some are a little wacky, frankly. Some, you know, which prince in charge changes, and that changes the complexion of their uh, foreign policy a great deal. Of course, every time we have an election, that changes our foreign policy. But anyway, so if Iran does get a nuke, what, what does the UAE say? What does Qatar say? Saudi Arabia. What does Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia say? They absolutely would get a nuke. How would they react? Yeah. And then, see, I don't know. I don't know. I'm glad I'm not in charge of this. It's was very in, confusing. Very I thought troubling. that was a pretty interesting layout of the the situation, though, for me and Bremer. I thought yeah. that was pretty good. I'm actually pretty optimistic we get to the bargaining table with Iran before too long and, and something semi-productive comes out of it. Um, but, you know, I, I would put the certainty rate of that at 60%, maybe. You know what? You know what Trump did? And Merkel hated this. But Trump said you can either do business with Iran or do business with us. And they chose us. Yeah. As Ian Bremer just said, the European countries make a lot of noise about uh, Iran and then want to do, but they're not actually doing business with them. Yeah. We said, you can't, you can't do business with them and us. Right. And they're, uh, they caved on that. Yeah. Yeah. For now, we'll see. And listen, I find the Iranian regime utterly repulsive in every way. On the other hand, I do get the old, oh, so we have to have free flow of oil through the Persian Gulf. That's international law. Is it you people aren't letting us export any of our oil through the Persian Gulf? It's got our name on it. So, yeah, I could see there being some resentment. Uh, well, what are you going to do? Um, I should hit you with this uh, this uh, Eaton study that came out. Yeah, please do. Come yeah. on. A lot of people start the week, don't they? Recommitted to eating better because you had a rough weekend. Isn't that fairly common? I, too, start many weeks with a lie. <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I, I had exactly. to stop at the all-night, all 24-hour big man store just to get new pants just, on the way, the way I ate over the weekend. Yeah. Ah. Ay, ay, Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Did you have the greatest weekend of your life? Because that's the standard, right? (laughs) You've been looking at Facebook too much. (laughs) 
Um, I don't know how universal this is. It's universal in this room. And that uh, Joe and I come in on Monday and gripe about, <laughs> about how we ate too much over the weekend. Oh, man. Then I put, well, I got family in town. My family love means weight gain. Then I put nose to the grindstone, eat pretty good throughout the week. All right. Start to dream of these new numbers I'm going to get into. Sure. Then it falls apart on the weekend. Anyway. Grab those groovy clothes from the back of the closet again, throw them on. Um, this headline in the Washington Post got my attention, and I really like the writer who is Tamar Haspel who we should have on because they're pretty snarky, and I like snark. But There's finally good evidence to show how processed food makes us fat. Modern industrial food processing has enabled the manufacture of cheap, convenient, calorie-dense foods that have become the staples of our obesogenic diet. Have you heard that term before? No. Obesogenic diet. I guess that's a diet that promotes obesity? Yes, it would. Yeah, okay, yeah. Um, I'm going to read what this person wrote. For many years, I've steadfastly clung to a position for which there has been almost no evidence. Processed food is the root of obesity. This doesn't mean that processed food is the sole cause. There's also the ubiquity of food, changing social mores in what is probably a more sedentary lifestyle. Right. Although there's very little evidence for that, surprisingly. It also doesn't mean that all processed food is bad. But a lot of it really is. Um, it means that modern industrial food processing has enabled the manufacture of cheap, convenient, calorie-dense foods engineered to appeal to us, and it's become the staple of our diet. By one estimate, nearly 60% of our caloric intake comes from ultra-processed food, which was impossible not that many years ago mm. um, because it didn't exist. Or it tasted terrible. In support of this, there is something finally called evidence. Now, this person uh, is um, uh, not quick to jump to evidence, saying, for instance, in general, studies find a correlation between processed food consumption and obesity. But since I dismiss population studies that connect artificial sweeteners to obesity, I obviously also have to dismiss the ones that connect processed food to obesity for the same reason and gives this stat, which is worth pointing out. People who eat a lot of processed food are different from people who don't. They weigh more and are 57% more likely to die of heart disease, but they're also 69% more likely to die in an accident. So you can't take all the causality to the bank there. Wow. So people who eat way more processed food are way more likely to die in an accident. Well, that's a much different lifestyle. So you have to wonder what else factors into that, right? Yeah, wow, now we're on to a more interesting question. I'll just sit here in my overly tight pants and contemplate that. All right, what sort of person eats more packaged food, processed food, and evidently ignores the uh, basic rules of chainsaw safety? (laughs) You know? Hey, y'all watch this. Or drives faster or boats drunk more often or whatever else. Sure. Um, because, it, well, it, it probably has to do with uh, you're in a hurry. Well, it reminds me of the whole smoker divorce thing. It just yeah. has to do with people who want more immediate gratification versus long-term happiness. But I don't want to run out of time for this, so let me get to it. Ask and ye shall receive the very first randomized controlled trial of ultra-processed food. This is what they did. They brought subjects into a lab for a month, a whole month, and fed them one of two diets, either ultra-processed or minimally processed, designed to have the same combination of carbs, fat, and protein. Hmm. Um, and the subjects were told to eat as much as they wanted. Why, thank you. 
I, I want to be in a, I want to be in a study where they say eat as much as you want. This Go is very nuts. This is important for science. We got plenty of this. I'll do it. <laughs> the result was that when they ate ultra processed food, the ultra processed food group consumed 500 more calories per day. 500. They also gained a couple of pounds. Yeah. The uh, gr- both groups said that they that they thought the food tasted good. They ate as much as they want. Why the big increase? There are a couple of different hypotheses, but one is this. There are about two calories per gram in the processed food, and in the unprocessed, it's closer to one. You eat the ultra-processed meals a lot faster, the calories are denser, and the brain doesn't have time to say, you're full, and you stop eating. You've You've, had enough, right? That delay between being full and feeling full. And they think that might be the main thing. You get in all those calories before the brain has a chance to say, you're full, stop eating. Wow. With with the other stuff, the calories are spread out more, and you get full, and you stop. That could be it. Density of calories. That could be it. This is the breakthrough, folks. This is it. More on that later. What's coming up in your news, Marshall? Well, it turns out U.S. Customs and Border Protection seized enough fentanyl in the past year to kill 794 million people. Well, that'd be all of us plus. That's plenty. Yeah. Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans mass demonstrations to force the governor out of office. Armstrong and Getty. Cheese balls. Number of texters wanted examples of ultra-processed food. If it comes in a plastic sack that you pry open with your hands. Right. If it instance, came from a factory. It's ultra-processed. It's it's barely by historical terms food at all. Right. Um, <laughs> right. That's the sort of thing we're talking about. News now with Marsha Phillips. Well, a border overwhelmed. ABC News reporting U.S. Customs <laughs> and Border Protection has seized and stored enough fentanyl in the past year to kill an estimated 794 million people. Boy, my list of people who really need to go is only 110 million people long, so that's a lot of people. Well, there are 300-some million people in the country, so that can kill everybody in the United States twice. Twice. Yeah. Now, Government Watchdog Office is warning the agency is unnecessarily jeopardizing the lives of its own agents by not sufficiently protecting them from accidental exposure to the stored lethal uh, product. You know, of greater significance, perhaps, to our uh, listeners is the fact that you now have 40% of Border Patrol people engaged in transportation, babysitting, uh, medical care, yep. the rest of it, of the many thousands of uh, migrants and would-be refugees who have been lured by our ludicrous laws and our, you know, the loopholes. And so the drug cartels, they get CNN. They yep. read the papers. They know what's going on, so they're flooding the border with product now because yep. they know we're way underhand or shorthanded. Homeland Security's Inspector General said the amount of fentanyl seized by the agents and stored in vaults has skyrocketed from 70 pounds in 2016 to 3,500 pounds so far this year. Well, and again, the stuff's like uranium. It's so yep. incredibly powerful. Yep. That, you know, we're used to hearing about tons of cocaine or marijuana or whatever. You get 15 pounds of this stuff, you could wipe out Ohio. Yep, they're saying a single 2-milligram dose of fentanyl is deadly for most people. Ugh. Yeah. All right, right now in Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans are flooding to San Juan to force their governor to resign from office. 
the governor leaked. Uh, the governor had a number of online conversations that were leaked. They were obscenity filled, and there have been a number of corruption charges over the years against his administration. Right. Lost in this story is the fact that one of the evil things Trump said about Puerto Rico when he was talking about giving them aid was, "They're a corrupt government. We're going to give them money. It's not even going to do them any good." Well, that has turned out to be true to a certain extent. Given Puerto Rico money, this corrupt uh, guy who was running the place Governor was just Rissale. stealing it. Yep. Or uh, shuffling it to his friends. And you remember that, uh, and he was pro-Trump to a, to a significant extent. He was the guy who was more sympathetic toward Trump. Then you got that mayor of San Juan gal. She turns out to be a crook. She was like right. hyper anti-Trump. Right. So, you know, to a large extent, Puerto Rico is a fairly third worldy island nation mm-hmm. that is a, a a territory of the US whatever that is whatever that means not a commonwealth or a protectorate right. um so yeah it's it's funky it's got serious problems governor roseo saying he will not resign he will not resign for office but he won't seek reelection next year and he will step down as the head of his political party Meanwhile, you got probably close to a million Puerto Ricans demonstrating today. Yeah, that was pretty impressive. I saw the video. They're they're pissed. The credit reporting company Equifax is going to pay out as much as six hundred and fifty million dollars to settle state and federal investigations into an enormous data breach. The breach in twenty seventeen compromised a hundred and forty three million Americans' personal information, including their social security numbers. The uh, settlement that uh, was announced today requires ex Equifax to set up a $300 million restitution fund that could go up to 425 people for people whose data was exposed. All right. I, I always uh, assume. Go to how many people? Well, you'd had 143 million Americans' personal information. Okay. So you got uh, $425 million set aside. Okay. All right. So. But do do I assume I'm ever going to get any money out of that? Yeah, you'll get eleven dollars, and the lawyers yes. will make hundreds of millions. Right. All right. And another. I wonder how many people have my social security number? <laughs> Dozens, hundreds, thousands. Practically as many as wanted. <laughs> yes. You know. <laughs> On another matter. Ah, uh, yes, we do have an Armstrong and Getty 2020 Democratic Death Pool update. Democratic President Candidate John Delaney. Now, shooting down reports that came out oh, on Friday. Oh, back from the dead. That members of his campaign <laughs> asked him to end his long shot bid for the White House. I, I follow this more than anybody should, and I'd forgotten that that guy was running for president. <laughs> and he's still running. He insists he's got no plans to drop out of the race. <laughs> right. I just love the idea that at the end of last week, he's having some sort of staff meeting. Right. And a guy starts saying, what are you doing? What are we? What are any of us doing? What do you? What, what, what do you mean you're you're still in it? Why don't you run for king of the moon? You're as likely to get that as president, you lunatic! Stomped out, tears streaming from their eyes. But now it's Monday. Everybody's calmed down a little bit, and he's he's stamping down those rumors. Right, he's so still in it. the way CBS does it, they look at the first eighteen contests. Delaney's Michael's pick, by the way. That's got to be really yeah. disappointing for you, Michael, in the Death Bowl. Yeah. yeah. CBS does, CBS does polling for the first 18 states, which includes the first several states and then Super Tuesday. Um, if you average all the polling for that, there are really there are, there's a first tier of four candidates: Biden, Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, and Bernie. Um, and then a second tier, and they're being pretty generous with the second tier. 
with boot edge edge. Um, edge edge, they say. Edge edge. Beto and Castro. Castro's at 2%. Yeah. Mm. And they're including him in the second tier. But so that is only seven people out of 20. All the rest are at 1% or less. Yes. To go. You got to get them out. You got to just get them out of the way. Mucking up the works. Really? 13 people at 1% or less? You got to throw in the towel. They're going to really do some carving after this next round of debates, right? You would hope. You got to up the ante. I mean, you got you to get these one percenters out of the way. So we can get down to the, you know, the good, the highest level yuck yucks in the race. <laughs> yuck yucks. <laughs> All right, that is a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. I do have stock in Julian Castro and the uh, predicted.org uh-huh. uh, money I invested. So I'd like to see him have a good performance at the debate. His stock go up a couple of cents, then I dump you, it. You're not invested in That's a trade. You're looking for him to go up and then cash out a little bit. Exactly. You, you weren't uh, on the Castro train for, you know, multiple oh, no, debate cycles. Oh, no, no. Right, I right, just think, right. yeah, his stock's going to go up briefly, then I dump it. But yeah. he had a great debate and went from 1% to 2%. Doubled. Yes. <laughs> doubled. Yeah. That's yeah. true. He doubled his numbers. You can indeed, poo-poo indeed. his numbers. Yeah. Probably out of racism. I noticed that he's, uh, a, he's a brown man, and you're, you're mocking him. Tate's hates racism. You're like the president. Racist. You're a fascist. I think you're probably part of the alt-right. I decided I was going to say this word once per hour. Are you wearing pockies? Oh, boy. That's pocket undies. Did you run that decision by anybody? Underwear. (laughs) Undies that have pockets in them are called pockies, and apparently they're sweeping the nation. My name's on the show, too, and I do not approve. (laughs) So it's like like boxer shorts, but they have pockets, so they're effectively shorts that look like underwear. Because a lot of young people are just wearing their underwear out and about. Like going to the restaurant and stuff like that. What happened to civilization? And you need something to, where are you going to put your stuff if your underwear don't have any pockets? So. We climbed down from the trees. Now we're climbing back up again? Is that what's happening? <laughs> what happened to civilization? Are we just evolving? Uh, are we right. eating bananas here? Are we throwing our feces? <laughs> Actually, we are in several West Coast cities. We're wearing pockies. Oh, that reminds me. I've got to tell you what I saw on the sidewalk in San Francisco on Saturday. Okay. It was not pretty. All right. I look forward to that. Mm. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. You know that you not doing stand-up drives people crazy. You know that, right? I'm going to do it again. It really? Just, yeah, I just had to... I have to get up and work. The only way you could get like an act is I got to go to the clubs and work out. I'm going to do that again. You still got to go to the comedy club. You still got to go to... You could have your own club. So you should buy the comic strip and I, I'll come work out there. You, you, you want to do that, I'll do it. I'll call it Jerry Seinfeld's <laughs> comic strip. <laughs> That's uh, from the new season of Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee by Jerry Seinfeld. It's on Netflix. That was Eddie Murphy hinting that he's going to do stand-up again, which would make huge money. Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, I'd love to see it. The guy was crazy funny. But I watched a couple of episodes of the new Seinfeld series. That is so good. Oh, yeah. I got to watch them all. Everyone I've ever seen has been great. Really? Yes, really. Do normal people enjoy that or just people who, who like, know. think about comedy? Netflix paid him $100 million okay. for uh, the whole package. Yeah, right. So there must be a lot of people who like it. But anyway, yeah. 
the two episodes that I that I loved, John Mulaney, which was really funny. He's a funny guy, and Seinfeld's a funny guy, and they talk about TV and stuff like that. But the Alec Baldwin episode mm. was hilarious. Oh, boy. He seems like he might be the funnest, most fun person to hang around that exists. Right. When he's not punching people out, he's cracking wise. When they're <laughs> don't sit- take his parking spot. Right. When, when, they're exactly. sitting, when they're sitting in a diner, he's just nonstop on doing voices and quotes and acts and like wow. scenarios. and He's just hilarious. Yeah, he is. He is. <laughs> uh, we used to call him America's treasure, right? right? Yeah, Alex, he is. Before he, he <laughs> got all watching, angry and acerbic and political. That's but, when he was on every week on 30 Rock. On 30 Rock, he, yeah. Because he was so good. Good on that. He yeah. is in real life just one of those people that is unbelievable. Yeah. Alex We're Baldwin. catching on Netflix. Yep, yep, I don't yep. even own Netflix. Stop. Um, I did at one point. I think I sold it. Probably ought to check that because I don't think things are getting better for. I, I was got all this excited. There's a new uh, Star Trek show with uh, Captain Picard. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the fabulous, uh, gifted Shakespearean actor helped me. I'm old. Yeah. Oh, why am I? Uh, Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart, of course. And I got all excited about it. Then I saw that it's going to be streaming on the CBS Unlimited oh, service. Boy. Oh boy! Yep. I did. I didn't. I've never heard of that. And they've got major productions coming out. And you have to buy a subscription. I reckon another yeah. subscription. So, yeah, some sort of. Who knows? Maybe it's four ninety nine a month. That's M- how they get you. Many of the network based ones. If you already have a cable subscription, you can kind of get in through your your pre existing cable subscription. But they, oh, okay. they are uh, I, they are aiming for their own standalone over the top kind of streaming. We were talking earlier about the percentage of Americans that don't have four hundred dollars even set aside for an emergency. Here's the place to start if you don't have that four hundred dollars. Look at your subscriptions. All you got every your month. subscriptions, right? Jeez. Yep, indeed. How often you eat out would probably be number two. Uh, so listen, uh, I hate to be ungenerous. I'm not a one-upsmanship guy. If somebody tells me a nice story from their life, I, I try to express appreciation. So I felt bad that I had to one-up uh, my buddy, uh, Matt. There's a lot of people named Matt, so I don't think that's given too much away. But There's a lot of people named Matt. Well, I, I'm normally, Joe Getty. Normally, I can't. <laughs> Shut up. Normally... <laughs> I try to keep people anonymous unless they've specifically granted me, you know, go ahead and use my name. Um, but uh, my buddy Matt was at a birthday lunch and making his way home through the West Coast city where he lives. And uh, he and his wife uh, were counting the bums and junkies on the way home. That's a good way to kill the time. As they literally uh, had to step over a large uh, pool slash lake of urine uh, right by the fancy restaurant where they went for the birthday lunch. And uh, they finally, they got to 30, uh, and, and they stopped. A mile and a half. 30 bums and junkies wow, lining the sidewalks. I happened to be in San Francisco over the weekend, uh, across the bridge downtown, and um, went to a ball game. It was big fun. But uh, the number of uh, beggars and, and bums and junkies in San Francisco is just astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. It's like a third world country. I walked around New York for, what, two, three days we were there last June, saw two homeless people. I was in Vegas for two days, saw zero. Yeah. So uh, per block or two total. Judy and I are uh, walking back to the car after the ball game, and uh, we stop at the traffic light to to cross the street. And Judy goes, "Oh my God, he's bare assed." I said, "What? Who is where? Why? What?" (laughs) Now that's how you start a conversation. I'm I'm, I'm squinting across the street, and I'm like, "No," she said, "No, right there," and just six feet away. Sprawled out on the pavement on his side, like he was some sort of uh, uh, Rubenesque beauty, 
on a couch with come-hither look, 350-pound guy, pants down around his calves, completely bare-ass nude, on the pavement. And everybody just walking by because that's just part of life. Right, as everybody's going home from the ballgame, whatever. There are hundreds of people within you know a, a block. And you San know, Francisco is New York in the 70s. It is. It's completely lawless. So, you know, I was thinking about this. Follow my logic here. Do societies, maybe a city, maybe a state, maybe a town, whatever, do societies try things? Of course they do. That's an idiot. The question is so simplistic, it's idiotic. Of course societies try things. They try out ideas. There's another question for you. So simplistic, it's, it's just silly. Are all ideas good ideas? Again, anybody who answered that yes, you'd think, oh, they should really be in a mental institution. They probably don't think there are a lot of people named Matt. Right. <laughs> right. They know nothing about the world. So I think we, the sane, have agreed. Societies try out ideas, and some ideas are bad ideas. Now, here's where we finish the deal and liberate you from this idiotic, nearly mentally ill notion that everything that changes or everything that's done is a good idea and that you have to go along with it. All change is not progress. Societies try ideas that are bad ideas. Sometimes they're disastrously bad ideas. For instance, a city where people openly shoot up and poo on the streets and walk around pantless and hassle you and demand your money or bust into cars and get and are never arrested and never tried and never punished. These are all terrible, terrible ideas. Again, and it's okay to say that. That was New York in the 70s, and then they decided in a city that is five to one Democrat, decided we don't want to live like this way anymore and, and change the law. And San Francisco and L.A. will do that again, too. So if you're going to inevitably do it, I mean, it's inevitable, right? Right. Why not do it now? <laughs> Why yeah. wait any longer? Yeah. You know, just a quick note, speaking of lawlessness with my whole uh, brother and his family's car getting smashed into and all their valuables taken as the Navy transfers them. Um, a certain member of the media whose name will be withheld uh, for the same reason as the mysterious Matt. Um, he says, so sorry that happened to him. Unfortunately, it's extremely common in San Francisco. My car has been broken into 20 times, including twice in the same month. Can you imagine everybody in the rest of America listening right now? Your car has been broken into 20 times where you live. Twice in the same month. The car is a 29-year-old beat-up Ford Festiva. Last time, they stole the only thing worth stealing in the car, which was the battery that I had just replaced uh, from it being stolen. Uh, Most people never even... uh, Oh, you guys were talking about San Francisco crime statistics, where, for instance, the, uh, the property crime rate is double that of Chicago, which is just astounding. Most people never report car break-ins. That's a good point. Including myself. Because the form to report is cumbersome, nothing's ever done about the crime, uh, and tells a story about you know the, the cops, the people who showed up, saying, "Why are you even bothering?" So, what's the actual number? Can you imagine twenty times, and you just keep putting up with it? We've got a another one of those stories of how far 
down the road of uh, crazy we've gone as a country in terms of virtue signaling or uh, tolerance or whatever. So I want to talk about that uh, next hour on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Just popped into my head, one of the conversations they had on Jerry Seinfeld's show, him and Alec Baldwin's sitting there having coffee, which I thought was kind of interesting. Alec Baldwin said, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of luck involved in being successful, just a lot of luck. And, uh, and Jerry Seinfeld said, I don't agree with that at all. He said, there are so many people that are smart or talented or have a skill, and they just think it's going to work out for them automatically. And they just sit there and wait till somebody comes to them, I guess, right. without realizing you have to put all this effort into making it happen yourself. you got to knock on the door 200 times. Yeah, I thought that was yeah. really an interesting, uh, uh, you know, two different views of that. There's yes. clearly luck involved in life. And it's okay Bad and good, but... to have humility about your success. There's nothing wrong with that. But, I mean, listen... The two of us uh, uh, doing a radio show were rejected literally hundreds of times, hundreds of times, and we just kept annoying people. Or you got really high and grades. We're in annoying s- you today. Or you got high grades in school and you're just waiting for the success to come your way. It's not going to work that way. Nope. You do have to go out and get it at some point. Anyway, a lot more on the way. Armstrong and Getty.